Welcome to Ruling Sports, a podcast giving you a playbook for life. I'm your host, Alicia Jessup. Join me as I interview athletes, leaders, and innovators to uncover their game plans for success and give you insights to rule your life. Let the play clock begin. Today's episode explores the importance of representation and inclusion in the outdoor industry and outdoor spaces to examine how people can step up as allies to women and people of color. Our guest today is L. Renee Blount, a Harvard-trained designer, creative strategist, adventurer, and storyteller. L. is the founder of Wonder House, a creative agency. She has appeared on the cover of Outside Magazine and worked with clients including National Geographic, Patagonia, The North Face, Athleta, and more. Through her work, Elle showcases joy and engagement in the outdoors by underrepresented people. In this episode, Elle discusses her journey as a first-generation college student to the halls of Harvard University to explain that even with an Ivy League education, career challenges exist for underrepresented people. She explains that even having a Harvard degree, she still had to go on what she calls hustle tours, which were coffee chats she organized with tens of C-suite executives across the United States, where she would travel to them thousands of miles to sit down and seek advice for how she could best position herself for opportunity. Here, she gives listeners great insights on how they can build their own group of mentors and the type of information they should seek from such sit-down conversations. Elle is transparent about her educational journey and what she wishes she would have known before completing her respective degrees. This is an insightful take, especially for first-generation college students on how to navigate college and maximize one's degree for opportunity. Elle next discusses how she got into the sport of climbing. Here, she highlights the barriers that exist to the sport for black people. She provides actionable insights for how others can come alongside underrepresented people as allies in the outdoor space. Finally, Elle walks us through the process of starting her business, Wonder House. She explains how she came to realize that her passion was something she could pursue as an entrepreneur. Elle gives incredible insights into how creators should price their services and negotiate deals. This conversation is impactful for so many reasons. First, it gives athletes and creators insights into how to turn a passion into an impactful business. More important though, It highlights for educators and corporate leaders the implicit and unconscious biases that continue to persist in their spaces. Elle's transparency about her career journey should serve as a beckoning call to leaders in academia and corporate America to question whether people of all races have full and fair opportunities to achieve their full potential therein. My hope is that this episode will motivate listeners to question and examine how they can serve as allies to underrepresented people in their spheres of influence. 
Elle gives us some very actionable steps to do this that we all can step up and engage in. So now, join me in welcoming Elle Renee Blount to the Ruling Sports Podcast. Elle, welcome to the Ruling Sports Podcast. I'm thrilled to welcome you here today and learn about your incredible journey. I'm so elated. I'm so stoked to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Another woman in sports and the business doing her thing. I'm I'm just really stoked to talk with you. Awesome. This is going to be a fun conversation. We kick things off the same way every time. What goal, quote, or mindset has guided your life? A Byron Allen quote. He's one of the few minority uh, Black owners in the NBA. And so he had a quote that said, don't play the game, try to own the game, that I really kind of like. And um, and, and another one is a professor just directly looked at me and told me I for who I am and how I walk in life, I needed to be bold. Huh. And like I got singled out and like it kind of stuck with me. What professor was that? So it was when I was in grad school at Harvard and I, it was this guest lecturer and she just looked at me and I looked like by far the most different in the room. And then she was like, you will always have to be bold. Wow. What, what was uh, your response to that? To be honest, she was right. I kind of, kind of took it in and I nodded my head. It was just a really interesting moment. And I think she kind of recognized how the world was shifting. And there was like, there's always like um, echoes of talks about race or identity and things like that sometimes. And I think it was just one of those moments where that was happening and like, you just could not touch it. But she just told me, I, I just need to stand tall and always be bold. How many people were in the classroom that day? maybe seven, eight, seven. Okay. Seven, what, what, what are the demographics of the people in the room? It was nearly all majority white, maybe one other Asian person, mm-hmm. mostly men or men and women. It was men and women, but it's not the first time someone or especially an executive or C-suite person has told me that hmm. like, they definitely kind of will say like whisper in my ear that I have to figure out how to make it work for me. And I have to figure out how to be bold and not be denied. Are these people white that are telling you this? A hundred percent. Okay. It's wow. It's very interesting. I can tell you that like, it's very interesting because yeah, in grad school, I recognized that sometimes I wasn't getting things because of my name. And so I recognize like, I have to figure out how to show up. And so I really wanted to work in innovation And so after I found out about it, what I really like is figuring out how to ideate and do a blue sky, be a blue sky thinker. And that's what I was really good at. And it's kind of also come in fruition in the outdoor world. But before I could get there, I was like, well, how do I get in the door? Mm -hmm. So I ended up going um, anytime it was spring break, I would go on coffee chats and mm-hmm. so I call them, you know, like um, in uh, business school, you do treks or things like that. I went on those and I, it was too many people. And so then you have like a gang of people trying to go to like three or four people and you get crowded every time. And mm-hmm. so I started doing those on my own and I called them my hustle tours. And so, <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I have a week in San Francisco for spring break or a week in New York. Let me bookend 10 to 12 conversations and Mm -hmm. make myself look busy and just start DMing and say people on LinkedIn and how many connections could I get and Mm -hmm. like show up and 
and talk to people where I'm trying to figure out how to get in the door because I wasn't just sending my resume wasn't getting me there. And like, who could let me and who could I speak to, to illuminate things as someone that's first generation, Mm -hmm. as someone that may not have some of the, will never have nepotism, but what can I do to make sure I'm learning and figuring out how to make my way through. And so through those conversations, I met a ton of really amazing people that are still mentors to this day. Of mm-hmm. like, how do I get into the door? Or what are the things I could be doing? Or all these things, or like, what firm do you think I should be? like down to very um finance conversations, or like, what would it take, or what is it going to take for me? Get what it takes for you, someone like you, but mm-hmm. for someone that looks like me, what do you what other things should I come prepared or other tools that I should have? Mm-hmm. Um, so I can be successful. So I, I've read a number of articles about you. It sounds like you went on hundreds of these coffee chats. Is, is that right? I went over like 60. Even once a month, I try to make meet with one C-suite person. And so during the pandemic, it's made it harder because for me, my energy comes in person. I mean, I was the note taker at conferences. I was, okay. <laughs> and so if you count those, it's probably in the hunt. It's probably a lot more because I would go and figure out who's, I would be always work registration. And then, then I could figure out everyone who's coming to the door and kind of pre-look people up. And then have like little conversations that I could have offside. I met a lot of people doing that. You've provided such great insight for how to begin building a network and a lot of great points to take this conversation further. But for now, tell us where you grew up and what you were into as a kid. I grew up as a military kid and I grew up traveling around, but largely in Georgia. I was a little academic and I happened to have an art. I went to a school of the arts for high school and middle school. I went to college in Atlanta at Emory on a full ride. And um, and that's also where I found climbing. But it's uh, my class is um, not linear. What arts were you into? I was actually in the orchestra and I went to a school where they got a Grammy nod. And so people were really wow. competitive. Found out that I had made it as far as I did based on attitude. And the teacher told me that. And I like really broke my spirit. Yeah. <laughs> that's basically like, you suck, but you have a good attitude that you you can keep continue being last chair. And wow. so, and you know what? I kind of believe not everyone should get a trophy. And so there were like six levels of orchestras. It was like really competitive. So I never considered myself artistic because of who I went to school with. I went to school with people that went on to Juilliard and things like that. And wow. so because of that, I was like, yeah, I'm here and this is a very academic school with an arts program. There was no sports. And so I felt more academic than I did artsy. So you're at this school, you're in Georgia, you have a passion for the arts. You go on to Emory where you complete your Bachelor of Arts in Political Science. You then go on to get not one, but two grad degrees. How did you approach grad school? What, what did you want to study in grad school? Well, you know, if I could go back and change things, I probably would. But I also kind of try to live by the ethos, once you know better, you can do better. And there was a lot I didn't know. And so in um, undergrad, I did political science because I thought I wanted to do law. 
And so what I recognize is sometimes when you don't have some of the touches of people in your community or you kind of overly romanticize. And so for me, and especially as my journey of being an adult is learning how to demystify and how to unromanticize things as much as possible. I did political science, but I finished it early. And so I would take all these classes at SCAD, Savannah College of Art Design, because I had extra. And so I had a creative portfolio as well, but I don't, people didn't know this. And so um, when I went to grad school, I got, I went to, cause I was like, oh, I like, like the way things move. I like the way things think, like, let me study like urban design and planning and real estate, like, and it was a, a terrible economy. Hindsight, I probably would do things a bit different. But when I was there, I was really interested in digital information and how that can change things. And so mm. like, my thesis was on like, if you, um, could you understand where people would gentrify based on um, big data and check-ins and things like that? And so, and then I was the TA for everyone for anything creative. And so that's how I went to design school because my advisor was like, you'd be a shoe in. And he was like, just please apply. And it's like a common, it's common to have those two degrees together. And uh-huh. so I'm like, went again. So if I had hindsight, I do not believe you need that much grad school. I just didn't know any better. And like, I wish I had a little bit more tutelage. Neither of my parents have degrees. They're living a lot of their dreams through me. And so they're thinking like, yeah, this is going to be more money. And like, like, how do you know? And so there's some things I wish I would have done prior to going, but, but it is my trajectory. So when I was uh, at design school, what I realized I really liked was thinking big picture and thinking creatively. And I had been climbing since undergrad and I worked at a climbing gym. And so when I was doing those coffee chats, cause I realized I was in the right stadium, but the wrong seat. And so how do I, like, I like creativity. I like thinking about details and I like thinking about things in a strategic way. And I like being outside. Like I like, there's certain things I really like, but I'm really in the wrong seat here. And so those coffee chats were discovering about where could I better position myself? Um, Because once you know better, you can kind of do better. Mm -hmm. And so that's what that was. And that's how I ended up finding about the world of creative strategy and design thinking and which really touches marketing. And it was like very innovative. Do you want exclusive insights from your favorite athletes, sport industry leaders, and innovators delivered straight to your inbox? Subscribe today to the Ruling Sports Newsletter. The Ruling Sports Newsletter cuts the mystery out of success by bringing you leadership tools, entrepreneurial strategies, business insights, and wellness tips straight from some of the world's most positively impactful people. So go to rulingsports.com today and subscribe for free. Okay, so we have so much to unpack here. Now listen, Elle has quite the roster of schools on her resume. BA in political science, Emory University, master's in planning, real estate development, and finance from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a graduate degree, master's degree in design from none other than Harvard University. I think your story, I think what you're telling us is so important. There's similarities in how you grew up to how I grew up. I'm a first-generation college student too. I'm a lawyer. 
why am I a lawyer? Why do I have a law degree? I have a law degree because as a kid, the people I saw who were successful were the people on television. And the one thing I could figure out was they all had law degrees. I knew nothing about what it meant to be a lawyer, what practicing law was, but Mm -hmm. this is the path that I traveled on. I think your conversation about these coffee talks and what you were trying to do and what you were trying to learn and who you were trying to meet is so pivotal because in this country, now listen, I'm a college professor. Being a professor pays my bills. We have over romanticized college. We have sold Mm -hmm. the American youth this story that this piece of paper is your way out. It's your way to prosperity, but we haven't taught them how to use the piece of paper or how to make sure that the piece of paper they're getting is actually in alignment with who they are as a person and what their unique purpose is on this earth. I want to go back to those coffee chats because I think it's very illuminating and illustrative. Those people that you're sitting down with who are telling you, do this, do that, be this, be that. Did any of them open a door for you to come Uh, work at their companies? I viewed it as sowing seeds. So remember, I was like, oh, I'm sending out my resume. I'm thinking it's amazing. You know, what's that? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting it to work. What I was doing wasn't working. So let me go back to ground one and figure out and retool and figure out, okay, what is every, what are all the things I can tweak? And like, let me go to certain markets where I also think I could like. And I also, to be honest, I had summer internships at like some design firms and I was looking at the clock. And so I was like, um, and there was a moment when this lady was like, I had on like this, the shirt that I have on now, she was like, she looked at me and she was kind of senior and she was like, and I had saved up all summer just to buy one shirt. Cause I just really, I tell I, us about the shirt. Cause listeners really can't wanted see it. it. Um, oh, it's a, um, a calm de Grosson sir. And so I just really wanted one. I'm not like, I'm not a super spendy person, but I just wanted one shirt. And she was like, this lady at the firm was like, I wish I could afford that. And I was like, well, it's time for me to go. I really thought that. So I was like, let me have some coffee conversations so I can also understand what people are making. Or maybe there's something that I just don't know about. And at this whole time, all through school, since undergrad, I've been climbing and, but I found out about the world of like innovation and brand strategy and that you could really do big picture thinking and I could become, I could go and delve into a lot of things super quickly. And these like compacted sprints of like, okay, we're six weeks with this brand, six weeks with that brand, three weeks with that brand. And that really appealed from, to me. And the person who told me about it, um, there's a couple of people. So I just started reaching out to anybody in the online network that had that, or I just thought was interesting. And I was surprised so many people were saying yes. And it was like, to venture companies, like the founder of One Wheel, I had cold emailed him. And I was like, hey, I, I love your product. It's about movement. It's about motion. It's a last mile solution. Like I'm going to be in, I'm going to be in California. I'm going to, I'd love to come to Santa Cruz, even if it's 30 minutes to mm-hmm. talk to you. You're an innovator. You're so creative. Like I am down to that she was the head of hardware at Oculus. You rethink how you see the world. It's about how people traverse. It's, it has to do with movement. It has to do with design and picture. She talked to me on the phone for like three hours. Oh. And that's still a person 
now she's the head of AR at Meta. And that's oh. a person that I still talk to. What are the ways, the pathways or avenues that I could be successful? What are some things that I'm not thinking about? What are some mistakes that you made that you wish you hadn't of? Is it okay for me to be a generalist? And when is that going to, or do I have to be super niche? I was having a ton of these types of conversations and it did translate to a job. Essentially, I was at a conference being the note taker again. I talked myself into VIP. Uh, I had a fancier badge. And so I showed up to be VIP at it. And so I just did it with gumption and a smile and I dressed well. I go in and there's this lady and everyone's talking about what they do for hobbies or whatever. And so that was fine. And then she was like, so what do you do? And I was like, well, I have two fellowships and I'm trying to get into these kind of ferns and I climb for fun. And I go out and like, I photograph it. And she was like, you got to go take, talk to my friend. She does, she's the head of strategy at IDEO. And that lady she introduced me to, um, helped me get into the firm that I worked in, worked at in New York. And so she was like, Hey, Elle, you got to recognize Harvard isn't special. I went to Stanford and she was like, F where you work, just figure out how to get in the door. Wow. Okay. First of all, that's like a hilarious Stanford joke. Only someone at Stanford would be like, yeah, Harvard doesn't matter. It's a joke. That's great. I, I, I love that. I want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. What, what I'm hearing is these coffee chats were not fully about getting a job. They, they were more about just understanding the system of how things work really in the corporate world, how to best navigate the corporate world to position yourself the best that you can. Is that right? Well, it was for me to understand exactly what they did and how I could translate my resume to make it work. People will have funky titles, but it'll be mean, like, what does recon inventor mean? Like, you know, certain firms, um, organizations have funny titles. And so one, it was like to demystify that and two, to potentially get a reference. Like sometimes just applying, I wasn't getting in. And so how do I have a reference? And oftentimes they were like, I can't believe we don't know about you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I applied three times. <laughs> I'd already applied and they didn't know who I was. And so clearly I wasn't getting through to the right channel. And I knew I was qualified, but I think my name probably didn't help. And I know the studies about it, my full name. And so, but I know if I show up in person, I have that much more of a chance mm-hmm. of just sowing a seed. I'm just uh, more power to you doing what you did, but I'm just so frustrated that you even had to do that because you, you should be able to put your beautiful name on your resume. It, it should be enough that you went to one of this country's premier institutions and that you had to go 10,000 miles further and harder. It, it just, it makes me mad, frankly. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the story of being a black, of being a person that's coming on, that's coming from a little bit of a marginalized. I wouldn't only relegate it to black women or black, a black person, but anyone that's coming from somewhere that's disadvantaged, like you have to figure out how you can get into the door and realize just because you have an H on your resume doesn't mean you arrived. And I I think there's multiple lessons from this conversation, but there are a lot of people in privilege, a lot of decision makers who listen to this podcast. And I want you to hear what Elle is saying that, you know, finally, when she starts breaking through these doors, she starts getting into the network. There's people who are looking at her resume, looking at her background, looking at her And just the incredible, vivacious person she is. And they're saying, 
Why didn't we know about you? Well, you didn't know about her because you've built a system that isn't really accessible to people like her. And how many great candidates are you missing out on by perpetuating that system? So I I appreciate you sharing this story with us and really taking us into that process. For sure. I know it kind of went off on a tangent, but I feel like that's my story even with that, the, the outdoor world. Totally. So let's go into the outdoor world a little bit more because I think that will bridge a lot of pieces together related to what you're doing today. You've mentioned several times you got into climbing when you were in Georgia. When did you get into climbing and how did you get into the sport? 2011. And so I was in college and um, I didn't, I went to a school of the arts, so we didn't really have football or soccer or anything like that, but I knew I was athletic. And so in college, you had to take PE requirements and I loved it. And so I was taking one every semester. So I took climbing and it was like immediate. It was like something that I just was naturally good at. And so at the same time, the largest gym in the country had been built in Atlanta. And so there are a ton of people in there. I started working at the gym to climb for free. Did you play sports as a kid? Some, I was born with a breathing issue. So my mom didn't let me play. And Mm. so I I outgrew it by the time I got into high school and middle school. But that's when I went to the school, the arts kind of magnet school. And so I didn't really get a chance to excel. I mean, I played Frisbee in college. Oh, cool. (laughs) Uh, That's because you don't need any experience to play that. And then as soon as I found climbing, I was like, later, like, this this is really interesting for my body. Uh, And I like, I already had upper body strength and like in some strength in areas where I just, I kind of knew that I really loved it. Wow. Did anyone in your family climb? No. So you're, you're the first person you're navigating this journey of climbing. Well, so, you know, um, how do I say? So I wasn't climbing outdoors initially. I was really just in the gym. I was a little nervous to go outdoors because, you know, bumper stickers and things change. And I didn't grow up with a family that did vacations or go to national parks. I don't think a lot of people that look like me did, especially if they're not geographically close. So you have to really go to some desolate areas. So, but at the same time, when I was at that gym, um, Kai Leitner, who's like um, one of our few professional black climbers, was training out of that gym. Him and his mom were driving down. And the first black woman to climb El Capitan was a coach at that gym. Wow. And there were some other people. And like, you know, there's just general stoke and people were nice. The lady who was like one of the first to climb El Capitan as a black woman, she was the first one to take me outside because I was like, I don't know about some of those parts because like my family has terrible stories. Why would I go? Hey everyone. I hope you're enjoying the show. Please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Ruling Sports on iTunes or your favorite podcast streaming service. It goes a long way to growing the show. Thank you for your support. So this is in Atlanta, correct? Yeah. Uh And what's that woman's name? Her name is Emily Taylor. She's kind of lauded as an amazing coach. So you have this great community of climbers coming to Atlanta to this beautiful indoor facility. But I I do think if you're comfortable with it, we we do do need to go back a little bit to what you're talking about here, because 
frankly, I think a lot of listeners just aren't aware that this is a reality for people. You, you said when you go to some of these outdoor places that are desolate, the bumper stickers change. And what, what I think you're referencing is, you know, in a place like Georgia, you might be seeing Confederate flag bumper stickers, just stickers that are inhospitable. Would that be safe to say? Oh, absolutely. Um, So you got to go to, you got to think about where are you going? And so you're going to Appalachia. And so some of those towns can be rad, but some of them, there are certain places as you're driving through, like I've been followed, I've been tailed, like there's certain experiences all over the country that are unsavory that people have experienced. But um, so for me, it's taken like going with p- particular people that I can feel safe with that I, mm, but there's definitely been times where they're like, we're going to the bathroom. And I'm like, I'm not, uh, I, I'll just hold it. And so, and that's a common thing, but it, I try to not let it stop me or live in a spirit of fear. I just like, I deserve to be there, but it's taken, like, I might travel a little differently. And then as someone that is. Um, I guess a professional adventurer and photographer now. I try not to let that stop me, but I'm very aware of where I'm going and will try to like get a little bit of a read or do as much as I can in daylight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I feel a lot safer. Like the stories are not so good, but I really try to make sure that I'm making it um, a place that is okay for me to be and that I'm telling stories that are genuine and where we can be in these spaces and reclaim it with a lot of joy. And so that, you know, there may be, there's some bump stickers, some places, but hopefully they're not everywhere, but it's still, mm-hmm. I would say it's like, I don't want to not say it is an issue and it tr- truly is. You know, this, this is an athlete and so much of what being an athlete is, is freedom, freedom in your body, freedom for your mind. And what we're hearing is it's not free. <laughs> you know, there, there, there's places still today in America that people do not feel safe going to because of the actions of other people. And what do we do? You know, what what do those of us who sit in a place of privilege, people who are overrepresented in this country, like, what do we do to bring attention to this issue? The attention, I think for me, one of the things you can do that's not as much as giving it attention, it's like if you see people that have talent or you see people that want to be outside or maybe get to know people first and be like, hey, if you ever want to go outside, you can join me and check in. Like, do you feel safe enough to drive alone? Would I, would you like to ride with me? Would you like to drive together? Like, you know, where you're both together. And so it's, you know, the world is not as friendly as it seems. I mean, it's tough. I definitely get like, oh, like, why don't you live in a van? Or like, you know, you can do do the dirtbag kind of thing. And I don't think people realize, I was like, have you heard the stories are horrible. If I've had terrible, some terrible experiences as it is, and I've been climbing for 10 years now, what makes you think I want to live in a van? The black van life stories are some of the most horrible ones. However, I do believe I can be out there and I can have a community out there and do it in a joyous way. You just have to switch it up. And just because you don't see someone living in a van, that's not the only way someone can show up and show up as best as they can. But you have to think about some of the, some of the safety things, just as a woman and a person of color, that's kind 
kind of been a thing I've had to dispel for some of my peers of like, I did this. And I was like, well, that really works for you. But imagine how, how would that work for me? And Mm -hmm. they never think about it. And they're like, you're so right. Oh my God. That would be, I was like, have you seen some of the stories or like, have you heard about some of the experiences we've all had? Mm -hmm. It's not the same. And I remember I really wanted to go to Yosemite. Mm-hmm. And I was with a community of climbers and they're like, we know you've never been. And I was interning in LA. We all want to make sure you come with us. Stuff mm-hmm. like that when it's like a six hour drive where you can be a little uncertain. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, and then you know where to go and maybe you feel safe enough to go the next time. Mm-hmm. Are there networks or organizations that are forming to build that community and those groups of people who can go out into the outdoors together? Yeah, there's a ton of affinity groups. That's why affinity groups are important because Mm -hmm. you can do kind of like whether it's, there's a ton, there's Mm -hmm. a ton based on location, but whether there's um, brown girls climb, there's brown girls climbing, there's climbers of color, there's there's whatever textured waves, Mm -hmm. ebony beach club, there's all these other things. There's a million of them. I will say if you are a white or white passing person, or even just a dude offering like, Hey, let's let me meet you or join you. Mm -hmm. Or like, Oh, I'd love to come out with you. I'm not trying to take up space, but like, if you're ever feeling funny, I'm happy to meet you there or Mm -hmm. drive with you. Just those kind of gestures can mean a lot. That's so actionable. It's something, like you said, that those of us who are white, white passing or male can do. And it's nice to have a friend. Like, it's nice to have a friend on those trips and journeys. And why can't we bring more people into this space and, you know, share, share the joy? I I love that you constantly reference back to joy and you're a model you create content, um, you do storytelling around the outdoors, and a lot of it is rooted in joy. Tell us about that. Tell us about rooting your narrative in joy. I mean, a lot of my work is that because when I started, so I started, I picked up a camera in like 2017, and I recognized that in a lot of the materials, I really didn't see myself. However, I know a ton of people who are outside at this point. And so there's a lot of erasure. So there's like, well, we don't see y'all. And I was like, "Um, you may not see because we may cluster together to go, but it's very much happening. But if you're not viewed as a marketing asset, how will you see this community? And so, so I was like, I started and I was like, started highlighting the trips that um, me and my brother were doing and they were so fun. And I was like taking him out and I'm a mentor. And so like making sure he was doing his coffee conversations real early. And I was like, Hey, let's go to LA. I, you want to do screenwriting? I'm going to meet, let's hook up with everybody I know from people who write at HBO, sit in audiences, and then let's go to Joshua Tree. And I'd bring my camera. And so we'd have these fun experiences because I don't also want him to um, have a fear. I just like how to do it safely, how to do it in a really fun way, in a way that's economic, um, economically feasible and that you you should be able to do this. And so with the camera stuff, it was kind of similar. And so I was like, I don't see what I see. And so how do I illuminate it? So more people feel comfortable enough to join mm-hmm. me. There are some stories out there, but you can't let that Um, be a catalyst for you to never go outside. And so the first brand that brought me in to uh, consult and tell me like what's going on and do a campaign, like I got some stuff in the North Face and then Arcteryx immediately called and like flew me to Vancouver and like, hey, what we heard you do 
creative strategy and consulting in New York. We're curious to hear what you say and you ideate for people and like, you could do this campaign. And I was like, okay, sure. And I was like going through all their stuff. And I was like, don't, don't. I was like, I don't like, like this, this is why it doesn't work and this and this and this. And it never occurred to them. Wow. Okay. So again, so much to unpack 2017. What year did you graduate from Harvard? 2017. Okay. So you graduate from Harvard, you pick up a camera. Had you done photography at that point or were you learning photography? I always really wanted a nice camera, but I couldn't afford one. Um, you know, I don't come from like wealth in any way. My mom's a single parent. When I was interning in San Francisco, I saved up enough to buy a used camera off a of Craigslist. And then I went to Tokyo for a semester and I got really lonely. I learned how to use it, but I took that camera with me all over. And then I would always also get asked to be a model and stuff by my friend's boyfriend, who was a marketing person at a sportswear brand. And I always said no, because I felt super tokenized mm -hmm. until I, um, I was injured and I had that little camera. And so I was like, oh yeah, yes, but I'm injured. Just send me up on this fixed line and I'm just going to take photos. And yeah, you could grab a few of me. But I was like, I was just thinking in my mind, I was like, I've been taking photos off of, and learning off of YouTube. I'm, it's time for me to be Jimmy Chin today. <laughs> and that's how I was thinking. And I was like, just playing around. And then I showed him the drive and he was like, huh, I like these more than the photographer I paid. Huh. And you could be in the photos. And so we used to start doing projects together. His name is Adam. He's still in Boston. So I would use my camera on him, do all the settings. And then he would take the picture of me. Wow. And so, and then I would go do my creative projects. Then the North Face called and they're like, we see you out here doing these things. Can we send you stuff? And then I started doing those. And then like Arcteryx called. They're like, we also learned that you, you consult at this interesting brand and you can take photos and you can be in them. Hmm. Can can you do a campaign with us? Wow. And so it, it all comes full circle, what you wanted to do, what you went to school for, what you were learning about from executives and leaders. You find this sport passion, you find a purpose through the sport passion, and you bring it all together in a career. The work you're doing is so important by showcasing black joy, black joy in the outdoors. It, it's so, so, so critical and it, it's just beautiful. I want to come to what might seem like a minor detail, but for the listeners, it may be a major detail. So you start getting these opportunities for brand partnerships, the North Face, um, other companies. How are you negotiating those deals? This is again, once you know better, you can do better. The first one, the first things that are coming like was like kind of my early North Face stuff. And then I got that campaign with Arcteryx. Doing that campaign, I did a lot of stuff, but I didn't realize what it was. And so, you know, here I am like, doing concepting and I'm in front of the camera, I'm behind the camera, I'm choosing all the talent. I'm like crafting this, like, how can I help craft the story? And then I'm also thinking about my ideas and wanting to understand how I think and why things are so obvious to me. With brands, after that Arcteryx one, like you start meeting people and be like, hey, what was everything that I was doing? And can you, what was each thing? That way you could kind of understand your value and worth. And mm -hmm. so a lot of it's on you to do your own research. Like no one's just going to straight up tell you. And so you have to keep doing these conversations. Mm -hmm. So, and I was still full-time in New York and I was like, I would have to do a lot of red eyes, like fly out Thursday morning, um, keep my consulting load and red eye back in 
And then, you know, I'm trying to pay off my student loans. I had to pick and choose what I could take. Then Athleta called and I did stuff with them. And so then I was like, I'm casting. I'm like, you're asking me what location we should go to. I'm not doing the concept for them, but they're like, well, can you also be in it and take pictures? And I was like, those are two different jobs. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, you can pay me double. (laughs) And so more companies would start to call. And Mm -hmm. then what I realized, I had a boss he was like, hey, you have something here. I don't know. You realize that you do. I was like, for me, this is like a fun side hustle. And he was like, you can consult and do this full time. And I was like, really? And he was like, I'll give you office space if you do this. Wow. You didn't see what you were building. You didn't realize like you're essentially operating as a one woman agency at this point. Would that be safe to say? Yeah. And I just didn't realize I was just doing it for fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like, how can I make sure I'm giving other people opportunities, Mm -hmm. people that Mm -hmm. deserve to be seen. And it's joyous because it's genuine. People were not, this is pre-George Floyd. These Mm -hmm. people weren't getting looked at. It was Mm -hmm. obvious to me. I love it. There's so much good stuff there. And I, I think oftentimes, especially if you're a creative one, but two, if you didn't grow up with parents who work in these corporate settings, you sometimes don't immediately recognize the business opportunity because you're like, oh, I'm having fun. This is great. I get to be creative. I get to showcase my talents. I would probably do this for free because it's so enjoyable. But what's sitting right in front of you is this incredible entrepreneurial opportunity. You actually went on in 2020 to found your own design firm, Wonder House. How did this come about? In 2020, George Floyd happened and all of a sudden, you know, I've been doing this for like two years then. I was like going out all the weekend. I had an archive that other, these brands didn't have. Hmm. And I knew people that they didn't know. I had a freedom fund that I built to leave New York. That boss ended up giving me a severance deal because he really, he like, you should go do this. And I moved to California because it's a lot easier to be in the adventure space when you're West Coast centric. I was like, I'll be in San Francisco because it's still innovation. I'll be able to do it more easily. (laughs) But all of a sudden, all these brands kept, people started calling about the archive I had. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. And then I redid everyone's magazines with my work, all the work that actually hadn't been bought as mm-hmm. like a provocation. And so in consulting, we'd always do provocations. Mm-hmm. What would be the world if we did this? Mm-hmm. And I had already made a playbook that I took to outdoor retailer and I'd made it with some consulting colleagues about rethinking the outdoor world. People took it, but never called me. I had already put it out there. Hmm. Uh, they didn't call me until George Floyd happened. And so when that happened, I was like, all right, I got six months. Hmm. Maybe this will last. I'm just going to go hard in the paint. Hmm. I'm going to be experimental. I'm going to do as much as I can to be a gate opener and not a gate hmm. closer. Hmm. And like making sure I'm not the only person that wins grants, whatever I can produce, whatever projects I can go out and do, let's make it work. But I need to make sure I'm smart about it. So I need to have an LLC. <laughs> and separate accounts. How's it gone? Um, I think I'm doing pretty good. There's a lot of room for me to grow. Like I'm, I'm learning by flat. So there's a lot of things I didn't know. I just was operating and consulting. And so then to transition to doing on your own is a little different. But I think having those couple of years where I was taking projects on the side, that was helpful. Okay. Then having these little conversations, understanding what people make in consulting when they freelance, like that boss really told me. And he mm-hmm. was like, and he was like, well, if you're doing freelance strategy, 
he was like, he said, I paid out $2 million last year, just freelancers. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize how lucrative it could be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if I'm doing that, what I'm not as senior as some of the people you were hiring, mm-hmm. what could I command? And mm-hmm. like, what's that number? Okay. Then kind of taking that on to kind of projects when people are hiring me, well, I'm doing a lot more. I'm really upstream to downstream. I can help you ideate and create and even design things and then as well as carry it out. The consistent theme throughout our conversation has been the need to one, boldly go where perhaps others haven't gone before, but two, as you begin that journey ask questions to people who have been there or who have been around there before who might be able to illuminate your path a little bit more to perhaps make the journey a little easier to navigate. Elle, this has been a fascinating conversation. You are so cool, so interesting. I look forward to following all that you're doing and will continue to do. How can listeners keep up with you? You can follow me at Urban Climber. Um, no E, just Urban Climb R. My website is www.wrndrhaus. So it's like Wonder House. Again, so much packed into this conversation. And I, I, I thank you for what you're doing. And I thank you for your boldness. And you're right. Everyone deserves to be there. And so whatever I can do to bring awareness to this and Hey, anyone who wants to go on a trip, I love traveling. So if you don't get paid, like (laughs) you can't do things without money. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be ashamed to get paid. I love it. Well, you are fantastic. I'm so glad we connected. I know that this episode is going to open a lot of people's ears and eyes and is just going to provide some great information. So thank you so, so, so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. I hope you gained wisdom that will help you rule your life. Let's stay connected on social media. We're at Ruling Sports on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Sign up for our weekly newsletter at rulingsports.com and email me your thoughts about the show at alicia at rulingsports.com. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review the show and join us next time.